Welcome to the Cork Church Podcast. We are so glad that you're joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and encourages you in the things of the Lord. Enjoy the message. Amen. Well, it's lovely to be here tonight, and it's great to have our WMA team with us. I got to spend a few hours, uh, maybe an hour or so on Tuesday morning, and um, immediately you just discern in your spirit the quality of uh, these people that have come over to uh, testify on the streets of Ireland. And I love that. They come to a people who is not their people, to a land that's not their land, full of compassion and full of desire to see people one for Christ. And I just want to, I just want to commend you uh, on behalf of myself and the leadership at Cork Church you know, for taking the bold step and funding yourselves. It's no small deal. I know, you know, none of you are millionaires, none of you are well-heeled people, but yet at your own cost to come in here and to share Christ with people says something of your character and the quality of what you are. And you, you are and should be an inspiration to all of us. And you are because this church will also go on to send teams out this summer as well. Amen. So it's a great relay. You come in and, and, and encourage our streets. Uh, we're going to the streets of Latvia. We're going to Switzerland this year as well to bring the gospel and help churches there. So it's, it's spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Amen. And uh, may, we, may we be known as a people that are always dedicated to the service of the Lord and to the preaching of the gospel and to the extending of the kingdom. And any other kingdom that a man builds, uh, it was once written by one of the great Puritan writers who said, he builds too low, he who builds beneath the sky. Hallelujah. Build above the sky. Amen. Uh, Build bigger than just your paneled house. You know, or your, your next vacation. Shouldn't be saying that. No, just back for one. Uh, and my wife is already planning. No, she's not. No. But we do, we do build for the kingdom of God. And uh, thank you, pa- uh, Brother uh, Chuck. We are so sorry that Helen isn't here. We love you very much. We love Helen more. <laughs> and... Uh, it, you know, it's amazing out of the heart comes. You know, <laughs> but we love you, brother, and we're so grateful for WMAID. And the ministry that you do is, is phenomenal. You bring teams all over the world. Uh, you encourage the body of Christ. You, you've got incredible testimony. Uh, they're great quality people when you get to know the Todd's and to see the, the, the places that they've been and continue to go and uh, bring, bring uh, missionary groups in and just encourage and so the seed of the gospel. And they've seen the supernatural many, many times move. They've seen people, scores, hundreds, thousands of people come to the Lord. Churches established, they come in. And I, I love Chuck's mentality. Chuck, you're, you're, in one way, you're the quintessential America. you're all American. You always think big, you know. <laughs> you know, that's America's always been like, you think big. You're, you're, you know, you're, we're too parochial sometimes. We're too small here in Little Ireland. But the Americans, they think big. And they say, you, you can do it. You can you know, think of it bigger. You, you can see the church grow from the few hundred here to maybe a few more hundred. Amen. And uh, I love that because it's true. Amen. And we do need to have a, an expanding of vision and an enlarging of our ten pegs and an enlarging of the capacity of our heart to take on more people and to love more people. Isn't that a great prayer to ask God for? Lord, would you enlarge my capacity to love people? Because I've got a circle of eight or ten or fifteen or whatever it might be. And I'm exhausted at that level of people. I don't have much left in the tank. But yet you're exposed to a lot more than that. And we certainly need a move of God because it's not natural for us to be able to expand to that level of benevolence and kindness and love. But it is supernaturally imparted if we would ask for it. Amen. 
So maybe make that your prayer. If I say nothing else tonight, maybe that's a word from the Spirit for someone to say, Lord, please expand my heart, you know, to, to, to widen up to your hearts so that I'm not so narrow and so small, including my circle of friends and my outlook. Amen. As you build two small friends, one life, make it count. Amen. I have a covenant thought tonight. Um, and just back, as you know, and uh, into the thick of things already. And I'm, I'm enjoying my time back. And tomorrow I have to preach. And I have to preach on Saturday. And we have something on Sunday. And if you're a preacher, you understand that when you've got a few lined up, it's very hard even to get the first one right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those who have preached, you understand the first one is going to be shaky tonight. But it's a thought. I, if, if you've been, uh, anybody bought online, you're welcome tonight as well. And here in the congregation. And particularly if you're visiting for the first time, a number of weeks ago, and they're all on our Cork Church Facebook page, I, I did a teaching on the New Covenant, uh, part one and part two. And I would highly recommend you to, to, if you get a moment, to listen to those teachings on the New Covenant. Because the gospel, as we are seeing it portrayed in the world around us today, has, has, has left the centrality of Christ and the simplicity of the gospel. It has gone into meritocracy. It's gone into religion. It's gone into works. It's gone into variation of religious endeavors and understandings and philosophies. And it's got a mixture of, you know, uh, Judaism and secularism and Christianity. And it's all mushed in together. And, and so, you know, we have to sometimes take a step back and say, what is the gospel? You know, what are we, what are we, what are we sharing with people? What is the good news? What makes it good? What makes it different? What makes it unique? Why should anybody come to this church? What are we offering you? You know, that might be, you know, a cup of tea at the end of it. I mean, fine, you're going to probably get better tea in Starbucks or a coffee, you know, but it can't be that. That can't be your appeal, amen? So sometimes there has to be that regaging of what is the message, and that is a very good teaching for you to go back in. What is the new covenant? And so we did that a few weeks ago, and I'm going to give you a covenant thought on the back of it, but to give you a little a, a recap, because some will know this teaching very well, and others, you're exposed to it all the time. But the New Covenant, of course, is the New Testament. It's nothing new. So we think the pastor Nick and Court Church teach something new. You've got your covenants in the Old Testament of the Bible. And these are legal contracts of agreement between God and men. And the biggest one that we saw in the Old Testament is the, is the, is the covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, where the nation of Israel entered into a legal binding contract with God, called, which we generally call the Old Covenant. It was a system by which men would interact with God on the basis of Ten Commandments, that if they would keep those Ten Commandments and dedicate themselves to God, that would be their legal obligation towards, their, their, to, towards abundant living. And then God's legal obligation was going to be on the other half, that if you would do this for me, then I would fight your enemies, and I would be the heat in your tent, and I would be providing the rain in the time of the latter rain. And, uh, it, it, and that, that was successful in part for Israel. There was time, you can imagine it for many, many years, they sojourned in the wilderness under that covenant. And at Shabbat time, nobody lit a fire. It, and God was true to his word. It's amazing that God came and entered every tent and they never had to light a fire at Shabbat. It's amazing because when you're out in the, in the Sahara Desert and, and, the, and, the, and the sun drops below the, the, the borderline, it gets instantly cold, close to freezing. And yet, all these three million Jews are experiencing free gas. You know, wouldn't we love that today? We wouldn't worry what, what Putin is doing. God would just be heating the house. Amen. And so even in a covenant, they experienced the supernatural outworking of, of God's... Because God never breaks this side of the, co the contract, does he? God doesn't... He's not, he is the covenant-keeping God. The problem is that we are the covenant-breaking people. 
Every single man and woman that has ever gone into a covenant with God broke it. And that is the history of the Old Testament. The history is, is, is not a very flattering history to man. It shows that men of all ages, of all generations, of all education, of all socioeconomic backgrounds, every one of them wanted and were up for the test of keeping Ten Commandments and staying in line with God, except they broke them every time. And so the promise of a new covenant, and the reason why there was a promise of a new covenant is because man could not, by the Bible says, by the works of the law can no man be justified. No man can stand before God one day and say, I'm, I'm here today because I'm a little bit better than Patrick there. I'm in church more than he is, and I, I, I give more money, and I help more people, and I, I pray longer, and I read my Bible more than the others. I mean, if that was about salvation, think about it. If salvation was based upon a Darwinian principle, survival of the fittest, you know, I want to tell you, it'd be very, very few of us would even get close to heaven. More, and actually, I don't think any of us would get even close to heaven because the rule of breaking a covenant when you break one command, you break them all why because you're dealing with perfection and God was trying to teach man something because man is so full of pride man still is full of pride every generation is full of pride from the time of Adam right through pride filled us self-belief filled us you know you know there was a it was a famous character in America and his his saying was his famous saying was yes we can you know, and so man has been saying that from ages. Yes, we can. We can ascend the hill of the Lord. We can, through our efforts, bridge the gap between us and God. And so that's why religion is there. All religion is there to do the same thing, to try to bridge a gap between us and God. Every religion is the same. and They're all the same. Every religion is the same. They're all wrong. They all teach through either through our religious ethics, belief systems, and rituals. You will make a way from here to God who's up there. You bridge the gap that way. And Christianity is fundamentally different. Christianity says you will never bridge the gap between God through, through religious endeavors and good works and behaviors. So God will come to you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that why Christianity is diametrically different to everything else? That God says, and so man doesn't believe that. So because man doesn't believe that, God gave him that first covenant, of, 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 which was a working covenant, to show him how fallen short he was of perfection. It's amazing, isn't it? That God had to give ten simple commandments. The Jews were delighted with it, of course. When, when the Jews were given this, this covenant, they were delighted. Moses spent three days, according to the book of Hebrews, going through the camp, spraying, spreading the, 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 with the hyssop and the blood up, and, and, and inaugurating the covenant. You can imagine, as he's blooding the people that are up for the covenant, they're all thinking, this is great. We keep Ten Commandments, and God will be our God, and we're going to be invincible as a nation. And they're all up for it. But of course, we know the story. No man can keep the Ten Commandments. And we fail miserably. We can't even do it. You might do it for a day. You might do it for a week. You might do it for two weeks. But when you break one, you break them all. And so that's been the dilemma of man all his life. And we begin to see that the shaping of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3, the great proto-evangelium, the first gospel preached, Genesis 3.15, one of the most important verses of your Old Testament, where God says he's going to send a seed that's going to crush the head of the devil. Remember, we spoke that a few weeks ago. Very important for you to keep on filtering these through and remembering, because this is the gospel. God gives, preaches the first gospel message to Adam and Eve right in the middle of the fall of the garden. He's telling them the gospel. Good news. I'm going to send a seed. Amen. And that seed is going to crush the head of the devil. Now the devil's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush the power of darkness. And, and so God preaches the first gospel message. 
How is a man saved? A man is saved by believing the gospel. The gospel always existed, friends. The gospel is revealed more in the new, but it was always there in the old, where God preached the first gospel message, and Abraham believed it, and the Bible says God credited it to him as righteousness. We looked into the chronological order of Abraham all those years later. We saw that, and we got that. I was actually at Chuck's conference a number of years ago, but what's the guy that came over? He, he did the chronological order of uh, the names of Genesis 5. Chuck... Chuck Missler was there, and Chuck Missler was, was going through the incredible Genesis 5, where the whole gospel narrative is in every single name. It's phenomenal. It's embedded. The gospel is there. Genesis 3.15, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham believes God. And you know, that's all God wants from you and me is to believe him. Because you're impossible. it's impossible for you to do anything else. You can't impress him. You can't work for his favor. You can't undo what you've done. You can't, you can't unscramble the scrambled eggs, people. You can't take it back. You've already said it. You can't undo what you've done. It's already done. And so it comes a place where, where God is trying to say to us that you cannot do it. So I am telling you right now, I'm going to send a Savior. And Abraham believed that. And of course, when you do the genealogies of Abraham, when Abraham believed God, do you know who was still alive? Noah was still alive. And Shem was still alive. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Right from Genesis 3.15, they bring that message from Adam. Right upon that ship of the ark. They land. They repopulate the world. Hundreds of years go by and they're still alive. You do your genealogies. Noah died when Abraham was 57 years of age. You can imagine when the whole world fell into darkness and unbelief. That Abraham, when his whole family fell into paganism and said, I don't know if I believe that gospel, that's many, many that's, that's hundreds of years ago. I know he's an old patriarch, I know he's got some experience, but Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible says, it's by grace you are saved through faith, by believing what God says he is and what God says he's going to do for you. That's what salvation comes, it comes by simply trusting the Lord. And so these are, this is the narrative of the New Testament. So veiled in the scripture is the slow progressive revelation of the seed of Genesis 3.15. And so Genesis 3.15 gives us a little glimpse into something or someone. Obviously we know it's Christ. But the seed of the woman is going to be a man. But every theologian that studies the proto even Galilee says the emphasis in the, in the Hebrew is more than a man. Because the first man, Adam... Well, he wasn't very successful, was he? Are we going to to trust another man with with global salvation and global leadership, you know? I mean, if he, born innocent and perfect, fell, why would another man be any different? So the Genesis 3.15 is implying a God man, something of a dynamic that didn't an exception to the rule. And of course, we begin to see that in the incarnation, amen, the exception to the rule. This God-man being born all these years later, Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And of course, in that interim period of 3,000, 1,500 years, we have where man is learning some really hard lessons about his character and his nature. That's why the scripture is written. The scripture is written so that you can look back and see that everything that you are trying to do to save yourself or make yourself happy, others have done it for 3,500 years and failed. Do you want to keep on? Do you want to try to reinvent the wheel here? You know? Yeah, you, know, you know, someone says, when you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat its failures. And Jesus said, you are an error because you don't know the word of God or the power therein. 
and there's an ignorance of people. People are desperately trying to make themselves happy, desperately trying to eradicate out of their lives those unflattering elements and agents that are working against them and against their happiness and their, and, and their sense of fulfillment. And, and they're trying to do it the same way everybody in the past does it. And it leads nothing but to failure. So man, because he's so full of pride, and that's what Adam gave us. Adam gave us nothing but a powerful spirit. You can be as God. Remember when the devil said that to him? You're not going to be God, but you can be as God. You can be better than what you are. Yes, you can. Sounds like an American coach, doesn't it? Fill you with false sense of bravado, you know? You can do it for two or three years, and then your knees, your knees are gone, and your back is gone, and you're not making the first team anymore, you know? It's so temporary, isn't it? Oh, you can look the, you can look the kitty at, at the pub or the disco, and you can look at the beautiful girl, but after a while, there's someone more beautiful coming up behind you, and you're beginning to sag. <laughs> and you're putting on it, you're getting a bit frumpy, and the lines are going on the face, you know what I mean? You're, 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 you're there at the roulette table at the beginning, when all of a sudden you're on the conveyor belt, and you begin to say, no, I can't. And any success that a man or woman has is so temporary. And you know, we've all experienced that, don't we? There's times growing up in life, we thought, man, this world is our oyster. Oh, man, this is, this is my opportunity. The world is my oyster to find out the world was my trap. The world was my enemy. The whole thing is contrived to, to, to give me a false narrative about myself, a false sense of belief, a false sense of happiness. And all of a sudden, it comes crashing down. And so Adam gave us that sense of belief in self. You, can, you broke it. You can fix it. And the Jews were up for it. I mean, they had to be the Jews because there's nobody more intelligent than them. If you ask me, you know, they're, they're tenacious, they're intelligent. They're probably one of the, I mean, come on, 178 Nobel Peace Prize laureates were Jews. You know, uh, <laughs> two were Muslim, by the way. But anyway, another story. Uh, so it, <laughs> I'm going to get killed for these things one day here, man. That's the truth. I'm just telling you historical facts, okay? So one was Yasser Arafat, so look at, look at that one right <laughs> And so this great people, this intelligent people, this hardworking people, this industrious people, this yes, I can do people, this Einstein type people, they are, they are the, come on, they're the fittest people in the world. They're the microcosm that God can show us that even the best people, the most clever people, the most hard people, the, the most industrious people in this world, even with the revelation of God, even with the covenant, we're going to fall short of the glory of God. And that's what the law was brought. The law was brought to kill that belief in yourself. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. The law was a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. Now, in other words, the law, by the works of the law, shall no man be justified. But we don't believe that. No, no, no. Give me the rule book. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it. I'll keep it. And so man tries to keep the rule book. And we, then we go into phase two, which is our sons and daughters. They're going to do better than their moms and dads. Anybody feel like that when you grew up? You know, my mom and dad were great, but they didn't get it quite right. And so when I have my children, I'm going to get it really right. You know? Yeah, it's a, it's a good thought in theory, but it doesn't work, okay? You're no better than your parents. You're going to fall into the same things as you go on in life. It's not easy rearing kids and disciplining the situation. And so that is the narrative through history. All the way through history. And so there's, the new covenant is going to have to be different. The new covenant is going to have to be different than the old because if the, if the new covenant relies upon you and me keeping legally binding a contract with God, I want to tell you right now, you're finished. If, if the new covenant is made between you and God, I want to tell you right now, you're finished. You're finished. You're not going to be able to keep a covenant with God. You have no ability. The law should have taught you that. 
burning in your flesh. Even all these years later, the lust of your flesh still burn because your flesh is still there. Thank God a new nature has come, but that old nature is still there. That old alcohol-loving nature still loves alcohol. That old sinful-loving nature still loves sin. Thank God a new appetite has come to the new man and the new, new nature, a new life has come. Amen. It should be the born-again spirit. But the reality is that if you think and I think that somehow we're going to go into a covenant with God, make a legal agreement that will deal with this sin issue, justify mankind because of some sort of righteous action or behavior, that is what a lot of Christianity believes in today. A lot of Christianity believes that somehow we go into a covenant with God. But of course, we explore the scriptures to to the servant songs and we see that the God-man, the second Adam, the federal head of this world, he goes into covenant with the Father. Christ and God make covenant. And having the time tonight to go back into that, most of our congregation, you know it already. But I, I, and, and, and on the basis of that, where Christ takes to himself the responsibility of undoing what the first Adam did and becoming the second Adam. Amen. Hallelujah. The life-giving spirit, Adam. Hallelujah. Amen. He takes upon himself a legal duty a legal contract with the father. He goes to the father and the father says, okay, this is what I need from you, Jesus. I need you to live in perfect obedience. And I need you then to be the propitiation. That means to pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. And that's going to be a journey for you because the first Adam, he didn't walk that journey with me. The first Adam fell at the first hurdle. The first Adam believed and succumbed to a notion that he could elevate himself to a higher place instead of believing in the tree in the garden, which was a picture of Christ, the tree of life. He went after knowledge. Of course, Adam wanted knowledge. You know, most of the church wants knowledge too. You know, most of the church in the last 30 years particularly has, has, has been fed a diet of principles. Uh, the five principles are the ten principles. I want to tell you right now, I don't live by principles. I live by faith in the Son of God. Amen. And from that, my principles come. But you can have all the principles you want and have no faith. That's what the Pharisees had. The Pharisees lived by all these principles, rules, and laws, and they had no faith, and they had no true relationship with God. And when Jesus came into their midst, they crucified him. So by principles, you will not enter the kingdom. Amen. This is a walk of faith, a supernatural unlocking of the power of the Holy Spirit that is promised to the believer. To the man or woman that would simply strip themselves away of self-endeavor and say, I'm going to rely upon the promises of God here. And even when I have an unflattering day, I'm going to believe what the Bible says about me. Because when the Bible says I'm the righteousness of God, I must learn how to say thank you very much. Amen? Though my heart condemns me, he's greater than my heart. Amen? And so... It's a beautiful thing to understand that when John in Revelation, he sees a picture of Christ, a lamb, he says that was slain before the foundations of the world. Amen. So we know that the plan of the new covenant was in the heart of God back in eternity past. Amen. We know that Jesus and the Father were not cut out by Adam's foolishness and failure in the garden. It wasn't that all of a sudden there was a crisis meeting in heaven when Adam uh, bit from the wrong fruit and God is saying, oh my gosh, what are we going to do, Michael? What are we going to do, Gabriel? Adam has just messed up my whole plan. No, friends. Hallelujah. God knew when he released free agency. He understood that man, where man would go with it, but he was so far ahead. So far ahead, friends. Well, hallelujah. We serve a great God. Salvation is a plan. It's not chaos. It's not reaction. Amen. It's the plan of God. It's eternal decree, the eternal covenant. And so God in history makes, makes a covenant with Jesus. 
And we see that order through the scriptures. You even see it in the book of Hosea. A lower reading of Hosea simply puts Hosea as a type of, uh, of God and the nation of Israel as a, as a type of wife and that there's infidelity there. And as a result of that, you know, she ends up in prison and, and ends up far from God and he, he buys her back and loves her. But it's much more than that. The book of Hosea is God the Father says to God the Son, I want you to create the world. But before you do, you need to understand they're going to run around behind your back, stab you in the back, end up in prison, and you're going to have to buy them back, Jesus. And he says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Hallelujah. The plan of salvation. And so to understand the enormity of our salvation is to have a revelation in our hearts that will give true praise to God, that will raise our faith to a level that my salvation is the is not a man's device, but it is eternal God's decree. It is something that is born in the heart of God for me. That is so solid, so strong, so invincible. Amen. That as a Christian, you're not on thin ice. See, I come out of Catholicism, and Catholicism always put me on thin ice. Or oh, the minute you sinned, you're out. And then you had to go through some sort of ritual, and then you're back in again. So many Christians are like that. Oh, he loves me. He loves me not. I'm in. I'm out. He loves me now. I've sinned. And if I died right now, he'd be just ready to throw me into hell. I want to tell you, there's no good news there. Just make sure you die on a Sunday morning in the middle of worship in the song that you really like. Because during the rest of the day, you had a rude thought. You, you crossed somebody off in the parking lot. You got angry. You, you, know, you, you, you know, there's no good news. According to that theology, you're just going to... You're just, you're, it's a lottery. Salvation is far better than a lottery, amen. Far, salvation was purchased. Salvation was earned, not with the paws or things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. A special blood, friends. A divine blood, amen. A blood, friends, a blood group that doesn't exist in this world. Your blood group and my blood group were determined by our earthly fathers. That's what genetic scientists would tell you. He had no earthly father. No O positive or A negative there, friends. A divine blood, a special blood. Amen. What a thought for you to go home with tonight and say, well, I, I'm a part of the eight blood group. Is there seven blood groups? I think, I think it's the eight blood group. I can't quite remember. I was never very good at biology anyway, but that fact is true. Amen. But I want to leave you with a thought here because there's a beautiful scripture in uh, 2 Samuel. And we know the story very, very well. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And it's when David has become king of Israel. And when, he came, when David became king, there was a lot of bloodletting in the kingdom. Saul's family were butchered by David's followers. It's not that David uh, sanctioned that. It's just what happened when civil war happened in those times. David loved God. David was the man after God's own heart. And yet there was, there was, there was violence in, the, in Israel. And now, but David is king and he's, he's in Jerusalem. And it says, one day David asked, chapter 9 of Second Samuel, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone who I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And he summoned a man called Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked him. Yes, I am, Ziba replied. And the king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them. And Ziba said, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodibar, Ziba told him. At home at at the home of Machorah and Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machorah's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son. 
and Saul's grandson. So I want you to understand the gravity of this situation. The Bible tells us in other places that Mephibosheth, when he was a baby, his nurse dropped him on his head and he became a cripple. And as I said, when, when David rose to the throne in, in that civil war, in that bloody civil war, there was a purging of the line of Saul. And so all of Saul, Jonathan was Saul's son. All of all, any remaining family members went into hiding because they knew what would happen. They didn't want even the... The, the, even a whimper that there would be a, a threat to David's lineage and another civil war. So the idea was to kill the bloodline off. That's what they did. It was vicious. It was evil. It was wrong. And that's what happened. And you have this, you have this Mephibosheth character. He's, he's in hiding. All his life, he's in hiding. He's in terror because he would have saw and at that time of civil war, the bloodletting was horrendous. There was no quarter given. And so he is also a very vulnerable man because he's a cripple. He can't, he can't outrun anybody. And so he's in hiding in a place called Lodibar. Interesting, Mephibosheth, his name means destroying shame. And yet when you look at him, he's a picture of us, isn't he? He's a picture, he's a dispossessed son of a king. He's a, he fell as a child and became a cripple like us. In our, in our humanity, we fell in our humanity, fell into sin, fell away from the grace of God, fell away from the presence of God, and all of a sudden felt that God was our enemy and found ourselves in hiding of God. And that's Mephibosheth's story. He's in hiding of King David. He's for sure, if I get discovered, they're going to take me and they're going to kill me. So I can imagine for the monster years that, because David's here, king a while now, it's not that it's just two weeks down the road, he's king a while at this portion, maybe two years and it just comes to him, is there anyone left to Saul? Because we know there was a bond between, uh, between David and Jonathan. And he wanted, he wanted to show benevolence, that he wasn't a ruthless uh, leader. He was a, he was a godly man, a good-hearted man. And so a couple of years later, he, he wants to find out, and he finds out that Z, from a man called Ziba that Mephibosheth is still alive. And I want you to put on a bit of imagination here. I, I can, can you imagine the king... It's not in the script, but this would have to have happened. He would have to commission somebody to go to Lodabar. He would more likely have been of the king's palace. And in those days, the king's horses had a signature bell. So when, when, when the king's command would come in, there would be a bell on the horse, and they would know it was, it was someone official from the castle, someone official from the king. So I can imagine, can you imagine that you are one day, you're, you're in your home, you're, you're this dispossessed son of a king, you're a cripple, you're probably bitter, you're fearful. Your view of David is that he hates you, is that he wants to kill you. He, he's after you. He wants to just put you out, put your lights out. So everything to do with David, you're frightful and fearful because you, you said, I was, I was on the other side. I wasn't on David's side. I fought against David. I fought against his army. I was against him. And one day you're in this house in Lodi Bar and you hear, you hear the jingle of the horses come by. And you sit your kids, bar the door. Everyone stay quiet. Nobody make a word. And then all of a sudden you hear them getting closer and closer. Jingle, jingle, jingle. And they stop outside your door. Can you imagine how he must have felt? There's no quick getaway with him. He ain't making a run for it. You know, he's a cripple. He can't get out. He knows he's cornered in. And can you imagine? He said, maybe they're going to, maybe they're going to the house next door. And he hears on the door. And he says, nobody here. <laughs> Can you imagine? Tries to change his voice, maybe. 
Eventually, yes. Are you Mephibosheth? Nobody here by that name. <laughs> We're from the king's castle. And you can imagine the fear. Can you imagine the fear? He has seen men beheaded. He has seen the bloodletting after the civil war. And how he thinks, the king's got me. But it's different. Let me in. The king wants to bring you to the castle. I'm sure he does. <laughs> Why would he surrender himself? Why would he go? There has to be some there has to be some consolation to him why he should go. And he's thinking, the king doesn't want to do me good. The king does, and, and the envoy says, no, the king wants to bring you. He wants to do you good. He sent us to get you. He wants to bring you to the castle. He wants to bless you. That's the good news, amen. That's the gospel. That's what we go on the streets telling people who have a warped view of God. Oh, God hates you. God. When I was a Catholic kid, when I, when I was a little boy and I'd fall and skim my knee, and I would come into my grandmother and go, oh, Granny, I'm bleeding. She said, that's holy God getting you back for being a bold boy. <laughs> it's the truth. That was my view of God. This angry vitriol, you know, that was, would, is quick to put me into hell as, as bring me to heaven, depending on his mood. But the Bible says God is love. And that's not who our God is. Amen. What awful misrepresentation there has been of our Heavenly Father. Amen. The Bible says, for God so loves this world. And God still loves this world. And he hasn't changed, friends. For there's no shadow or turning in him. And you can imagine that he must be wrestling behind that door in his mind. The envoy saying, no, I have a commission to bring you in. You are going to be blessed. You're going to be restored. And he has to have a basis to believe that. Because you're not going to move from behind that door and give yourself to someone. Unless you believe there's a legal reason that you're protected. Until he hears the words, Ah, oh, but you don't realize, Mephibosheth. And you have to go back. Back to 1 Samuel. Chapter 20. Where Jonathan and David were great friends. And one day David asked, asked a favor of him to find out was Saul going to kill him? Is dad going to kill him or not? And Jonathan said, come out to a field with me. And they went out together and Jonathan told David, I promised, I promised by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow, the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I will let you know. And if he's angry and wants to kill you, may the Lord strike me even. Kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you. As he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with the faithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth, demanded of them. So Jonathan made a covenant with David. And I want to tell you, it's only when Mephibosheth heard, Mephibosheth has got nothing to do with you. 
long before you were born. It doesn't matter that you're a cripple. It doesn't matter that you're on the wrong side. It doesn't matter that you're the dispossessed son of a king. Long before you were born, there was a covenant made between Jonathan and David to do you good. And when we read the new covenant, I want to tell you when you read the new covenant, it's got nothing to do with you. Long before you were born, God the Father and God the Son said, I will love them because of what you're going to do, Jesus. Amen. And that gives you a confidence that on my worst day, on my most crippled moments, on my most self-effacing times, it has nothing to do with me. Christ made a covenant with his heavenly Father. Hallelujah. And the Father says to the Son, all who come to you, I will in no wise cast them out. Hallelujah. If anyone, any Christian man today doubts their ability to enter the presence of God, doubt it no more, friends, because you don't enter the presence of God on your merits. You enter it on the bloodstained ground of Jesus Christ that paid for it long before you were born, long before you were taught, friends. He made a covenant. And so that's the only reason Mephibosheth could have a confidence to know that David made a covenant with his father all those years before he was born, that David would do him good. And I want to tell you today, friends, we stand on a new covenant where God says, I will only do you good. Hallelujah. I will only do you good. I will strike my Christ for what you have done, but I will only do good for you. Hallelujah. So that's why Isaiah says, it pleased God to bruise him. The word in the Hebrew is shafat. It means to turn cartwheels. Why would God turn cartwheels as he is bruising his own son? Because he loved you for the joy that was set before him. He made a covenant with his son. You pay, you undo what they did, and you live in obedience, and I will receive them no matter how weak, no matter how wretched, no matter how fallen, I will receive them. And the beautiful thing about it, and this is where most Christianity gets some of these things wrong. Most Christians will line up with that and say, that's true, that's great. Now, this will be the part B where some get it wrong. Now, Mephibosheth, now you know that's true. All you have to do now is make it, walk your way, make it to Jerusalem. Come on. You know, trust. You, you, you just need to get up and make it. And he's looking down. He's, these things don't work. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross, I bring nothing but my brokenness. I have nothing to bring. I can't make it there. Modern Christianity says, oh, no, this is good up to this point, Pastor Nick. God definitely comes along. He, he pulls you up out of the mire. He cleans you up. He gives you a new garment, and he gives you a rule book. It's like, it's, and not only that, he used a big John Deere tractor to put you up out of the mud and mire, and he leaves the tractor. And all you have to do is learn how to work the tractor and drive to Jerusalem. And so we all get into the tractor and think, oh, good, I'll do this. I can drive a tractor. But most of us don't know how to drive tractors. We go into reverse and now what's in the tractor or in the mud? <laughs> you're Mephibosheth. You're dispossessed. You're broken. You're weak. You're hiding. You have nothing to bring to the table. Yet there's a covenant made. Hallelujah. Long before you were born. Between the Christ who loved you and says that the joy that was set before him Endure the cross. Hallelujah. That's why I have confidence in time of need. Not because I deserve it. Because Christ and the Father made a covenant. A legally binding agreement. Hallelujah. And Jesus says to the Father, I will be that obedient servant from Isaiah, the four servant songs. 
I will walk in Isaiah 53. I will become pierced and bruised and marred above any man. I will pay for the sin. I will walk in perfect obedience. I will do what you asked. But this is what I ask you, Father. Whoever comes to me, you receive. If I rise, they rise. If I get seated in the right hand of majesty, they are seated with me. Hallelujah. If I, what a promise you have in the covenant of God's grace tonight. That's what the new covenant brings you. That's what the story type of Mephibosheth is. Long before you were born, Lord Jesus made a covenant with his heavenly father to do you good. And Jeremiah tells us, I will never turn away. In the same covenant, the 32, Jeremiah 32 and verse 32, I will never turn away from doing you good. What a great savior. I say he's worthy, friends. I said he's worthy of praise, amen. He's worthy of worship, and he's worthy of praise tonight. Come on, just stand for a moment and begin to worship him. Come on, stand to your feet today. And you, you might be someone here, you might be suffering in your mind. You might be so under the cosh of depression. The enemy might be sitting on your shoulders saying you're unworthy, you're broken, you bring nothing to the mission team, you bring nothing to the church, you bring nothing to your family, you bring nothing to your husband, you bring nothing to life, you're a miserable waste of space. I want to tell you, you're loved as much as those who are productive around you. You're loved because Christ and I will love you. And he's demonstrated that love and that while we were still in rebellion, he died for us. And I want to tell you, you don't fear him. You run to him. Amen. You don't cower. You run into his presence with confidence in time of need. Anyone in need this tonight? I want every eye closed, every head bowed. If you're in need tonight, put your hand up. Say, I need to come to that throne of grace tonight. Then come boldly. Come on, put your hand up and put it up boldly, not sheepishly. Because I want to tell you, you've got a father who loves you. You've got Christ standing in the right hand of majesty saying, this one is with me. And God says, I will never cast you away. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how you've done it, how many times you've done it. Come on to me and live. And see the love of God in action. And begin to experience it before you even begin to tell another person. Because this is not a theory, friends. This is a testimony. I know what amazing grace looks like. I've experienced amazing grace. I felt amazing grace. I felt brought in when I should have been put out. I was the enemy. I was a broken man. I was a lame leper. Nobody would touch me. I was in Lodibar. My name is Mephibosheth, destroyer of shame. And that's what God comes to and says, I'm going to truly destroy your shame, says the Lord. I'm going to take away your shame. Amen. I'm going to give you my name, my spirit, and I'm going to pronounce over you a title that you don't deserve, you've never earned, but I am giving you because Christ earned it for you. And we praise him tonight. Come on, I want you to praise him. Just praise him tonight. Hallelujah. What a mighty God. What a gospel, friends. Now I want to tell you in closing tonight, friends, that is the new covenant in a nutshell. Long before you were born, a covenant was made. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No more we doubt the glorious prince of life. Life is not without the aid us in our strife. Make us more like conquerors through thy deathless love. Bring us safe to Jordan, to thy home above. Not that I'm going to walk to Jordan. Bring me safe to Jordan, Lord. Do you know what I want to tell you before we close this meeting tonight? He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're going to Jordan. You're going there. You're not going to be saved by the skin of your teeth. There's no skin in your teeth. There shouldn't be if you're brushing them. You're not saved by the skin of your teeth. You're saved to the uttermost. Hallelujah. And stop doubting him. And stop questioning it. 
and learn to say thank you. And if you do that, Christian, you're going to grow in faith. And when you grow in faith, let me tell you, hell will tremble everywhere you go. Because I'm telling you, it is by faith we apprehend the promises and the authorities and walk in the authority of Christ. Amen. But it comes from that place of rest. I am not the reluctant bride anymore. And I'm not doubting his love for me. And I'm not doubting my position. And I'm not doubting that I'm in or out. I'm in. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. God bless you tonight. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cork Church. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions, you can email us info at corkchurch.com or just check out our website. It's www.corkchurch.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time.